Well, good morning. This morning, I can honestly say that I have kissed the lead worshiper. <laughs> and in that sense, I'm really glad it's not Jeff. <laughs> Beth and Chris Ross have led the worship in the band and student ministry this spring. And I feel like they've taken it to the next level. And I requested that they would lead worship on this special day for our graduates. I hope they blessed you. There was a crisis at the Clegg House a few months ago. If you lived with us, you might say every minute of every day <laughs> is a crisis at the Clegg House. But this, is, this one was for real because it happened to me. On a Friday morning at about 4 o'clock a.m., Beth left with Laney and Sayla, our two daughters, and took them to Dallas to a dance convention. And that left me at the house with my son, Judd. Some of y'all know Judd. If you're not familiar with Judd, we adopted him in October of 2016 from Shanghai, China. He was two and a half years old. He has a condition called albinism. There is no pigment in his skin. He's solid white. There's no pigment in his hair or in his eyes. So he's just a solid white little boy. And his, it affects his vision when he's in UV rays. Uh, but other than that, he just gets sunburned a little worse than other people. But that Friday morning, he wakes up and it's just me and him. Mom and sisters are gone. He comes into the living room and he says, Daddy, what's for breakfast? And I said, well, son, what do you want for breakfast? And he said, I want chips. I said, okay. So I got a little package of Lay's potato chips, one of the individual things, gave it to him. About the fourth chip, he looked at me and he said, Daddy, I'm looking forward to spending time with you. <laughs> his, heart, his heart language is food. Um, he, he loves food. So I took him to Wee School on that Friday morning and let Miss Beth and they'll them deal with him for a little while. I'm, I'm lobbying for Wee School Summer School. <laughs> Miss Beth hadn't agreed yet. But anyways, he stayed till lunch. I work here, obviously, so I walk over to the Wee School and pick him up, and we're walking out to my truck, and Miss Cindy Baker is getting into her car. She's fixing to leave, and she rolls the window down, and she says, Hey, Dustin, I've got this little bit of chocolate here. Do you think Judd would want it? And lunch. <laughs> so Judd gets Pringles for breakfast and chocolate for lunch that day. Uh, we go home, we watch all of his favorite TV shows at the house, we go to the movies that night and help Doug and Jill at the movies, I don't know what they would do without my help at the, at the Win Twin, but Judd loves that. After that we went to Ben's, which is the local Chinese restaurant, did, did I tell y'all we adopted Judd from China? He goes in there and he wants shrimp and rice. Shrimp fried rice. 
So he eats and he's loving it. I have to leave a little extra tip when we leave because he lo it looks like he ate it with a weed eater. There's rice <laughs> all over the floor. We go home, go to bed. Judd wakes up the next morning. He wants chips again on Saturday morning, and I gave him chips. I can't remember what we ate for lunch that day, but I do remember he had been begging me for crawfish. So at supper time, I cooked Judd crawfish, and that's the king of all foods for Judd. If he eats crawfish in public, he will embarrass you by some of the sounds that he makes when he's, <laughs> when he's eating them. He loves crawfish. So he eats these crawfish, and I fix him a side of Uncle Ben's cheesy rice. So he's eating crawfish and shrimp and rice. I mean, he's in hog heaven. And I go to him, and I say... Uh, son, I'm fixing to go feed the dog. I don't know what's happened in Judd's past, but somehow he has become terrified of animals, especially dogs. We had a dog at that time. So I left him inside watching Moana for the 31st time that day. He, he concerns me sometimes because he thinks he's Moana at times, and he, Moana is a dark-haired, dark-skinned little girl. But we're working through that. I go outside, I get a cup of food, and I pour it in my dog's food tray, and I'm coming back in. I was outside a total of five minutes, no lie, five minutes or less, and I'm walking up to our door, and our door has glass in it so I can see inside, and I come around the corner of our house, and I look in, and there's Judd. And the best way I know how to describe to you what I saw in that moment was a three-foot-tall, solid white Grinch who is about to steal Christmas. You know when he does that? <laughs> he smiled at me real big through the glass. And I didn't know what was wrong at that point, but I got in, my heart started racing at that point. I, had, I did not have anything with me, and I wasn't just completely dressed for public. But I walk up to the door, I grab the doorknob, and I try to twist, and he's locked me out. No phone, no keys, I'm outside, Judd's inside. So I go to my business tone, and I say, boy, unlock this door right now and he looks at me and he smiles real big and he says better try the garage door <laughs> he sprints down the hall and I thought he's fixing to go lock the garage door so I, I run around I type in the code to the garage it's coming up and I can see the knob turning and I am panicking Beth's in Dallas I don't have keys, I don't have a phone to call anybody. I sprint to the door, and I bust through it right before he gets the door locked. I said, boy, you better not, mm. He came to church telling it the next morning. He was, I have fed that kid everything he could imagine. I was speaking his heart language all weekend. 
Not to mention, that was my house that the brother locked me out of. <laughs> Not to mention that we flew to Shanghai, China, and spent two weeks there that were rough to give him a better life here in America. And sometimes the Lord is so good to his people that we begin to assume control of things that are not ours to control. We develop preferences and opinions which become primary, and before we know it, the Lord has been pushed outside and is no longer central. One critical way we do this is with our worship. The title of this morning's message is Worship the King. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 6 and asking God to reveal to us through his word and this message how he wants us to worship him. It's a plea for these graduates and for all who listen to take the next step and mature in their worship. Pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, It is both a huge honor, honor and a terrifying responsibility to stand in front of your people and open your word and speak on your behalf. I know that I fall short. I know that I'm not qualified. I agree with you in those things. So this morning I pray that you somehow supernaturally speak to your people. Speak to these graduates. Teach us how you want to be worshipped. I pray that after today we, don't, we no longer say, think about how I want to worship, but we begin to think about how God wants to be worshipped. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, feet and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. This is a very dramatic passage that Isaiah paints for us in, in the Scripture. He, he, he tells us about seeing the Lord high and, and lifted up on a high and lofty throne. And he talks about the edge of his clothes, not his clothes, but the edge of his clothes filling the temple. 
Huge guy. Then he describes these weird animals that have six wings. Two are covering their feet. Two are covering their faces. And two are flying. And they're shouting to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. And the earth is filled with His glory. They're saying, they're, what they're saying there is that the Lord is over every authority, over every army. He, he is sovereign over all things. He is still running the show, and there's not an inch of this earth that is not touched by His glory. The wording of the entire passage that I'm, I'm going to read to you this morning and, and work through with you is very important, and we're not going to have time to talk through all of the details of it, but, but there's two words in these first four verses that are very important. They're two little words. They are the words, I saw. They may not mean that much to you at first glance, but they're very important to understanding this passage. Did Isaiah summon the presence of God? No. Did he sing and have a feeling or an emotion? Nope. Isaiah was invited into something that was happening with or without his participation. The first point of this sermon is that true worship is always being initiated by God. And graduates, when you leave this place, when you leave Wim Baptist, every moment of the rest of your life, you're going to be faced with opportunities to give your worship to Jesus. And I want to encourage you to do that. And, and Wim Baptist Church, I want to encourage you tomorrow to look for opportunities to worship. But I also want you to understand that worship will happen with or without us. We are invited into this thing, but worship does not require me and you. Worship will happen with us. Or worship will happen without us. These crazy things called seraphim are still worshiping today. They're still crying, holy, holy, holy today. There are people in China meeting in secret with their lives on the line, worshiping King Jesus today. There are people in Zambia, Africa, walking miles barefooted to a tree in 130 degree weather to sing worship and worship together with their brothers and sisters today. Whether we worship or whether we don't, worship will happen regardless. If we worship Jesus passionately or if we're bored with Him completely, the foundations are still shaking and the temple is still smoking with the power and the fire from this God. Some of us struggle with boredom when it comes to church and King Jesus. If that's the case, we need to understand that it's not a type of music problem. It's not a time or place problem. It is a blindness problem. Because when your eyes are opened to King Jesus, my dear friend, you will worship. Verse 5, 
Then I said, this is Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Isaiah's first response to this scene that's described in the first four verses is very interesting. He doesn't join with the seraphim. He doesn't start to sing at all. His first response is to fall on his face in confession. Do you know that sometimes worship isn't meant to feel good? True worship always involves confession. But confession is sometimes a misunderstood word in the church today. We think of it as admitting something. For you farmers, the thing I think of all the time is um, when I was farming and walking around the backside of my truck and I forget that hitch is there. <laughs> and you, you walk into it full blast about right there. It's hard to keep bad stuff from coming to your mind. And, and if we were in that position, we might say, God, I kicked the hitch today and I thought or I said something bad. God, God already knows we did that. That's not really confession. Confession is, is seeing our sin from the perspective of God and agreeing with Him. There's a difference. It's not only admitting our sin, it is, it is to come and, and see our sin from his perspective and realizing how he views it. So, so there are these people, there are those who, who are addicts, and, and, and before they can truly worship, they need to confess their sin to God. And, and there are those who act out sexually, and before they can truly worship, they need to confess their sin to God. And there are those who lie and those who steal, and before they can truly worship, they need to confess their sin to God. And whatever is the worst sin in your mind, before that person can truly worship King Jesus, they need to confess that sin. But there's another side to this. I'm about to share something with you. A passage of Scripture that, that to be honest with you, I'm not completely comfortable with. It, it bothers me. It makes me uncomfortable. It's a very strange passage. It's a very extreme passage. It, it has the opportunity to offend you when you hear it. Graduates, you're about to step into a world where anything that is offensive is wrong or bad. And we may have to live by that standard for the rest of our lives, but God does not submit to that standard. If He needs to offend us, it is right for us to be offended. I would never use this pulpit to intentionally offend somebody. But when I stand here and speak to you, I am much more concerned with offending the Lord than I am offending even you who I dearly love. We must absolutely understand this. 
before we can truly worship in this room. Before we do, I'm going to pray one more time. God, I pray your people would hear your heart. I pray that the way this is stated is no less or no more than you want it stated. But it's completely in line with who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 64, verse 6 is on the screen. You don't have to turn there. It says this. All of us have become like something unclean. And all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. Some of your versions may say all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. All the commentaries that I've read on this passage state that Isaiah had an Old Testament mind, so you have to think what is he saying when he's describing these polluted or defiled garments. He's not talking about an oily shop tile at the farm shop. He's not talking about dirty clothes. The consensus of what I've read is that he's probably talking about a garment that were, was worn by women during their monthly cycle or bandages worn by people with skin conditions like leprosy. And so to put it in our perspective, it would be as though there was a pile of these garments right here in our sanctuary and everybody knows what they are but nobody knows whose they are or where they come from. And I hope that makes you a little uneasy because that's the way God feels when He sees our, not our sin, our righteousness. Now this is where I disagree with the commentators a little bit. They say... That what had happened is the people's sin had gotten so bad that their very best deeds had become bad things. I disagree. The reason I disagree is the verse right in front of it, which is fixing to be on your screen. Verse 5. You welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in your ways. And the very next verse says, there is a righteousness that disgusts you. So he's, Isaiah is painting a picture of two types of righteousness. There is a righteousness that aligns with the heart and the passions of God. And there is a good old boy righteousness that is moral, but has nothing to do with the heartbeat of God. And it is not disappointing but disgusting in the sight of God. Isaiah is not the only one that talks about this. Jesus talks about this. He doesn't say it in those terms, but you can see it all over the stories of Jesus that he tells. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story and he introduces this man who was a Pharisee and he's over here. Man, he's got it all together. 
He fasts. He reminds God that he fasts. He's at the temple praying. He, has, he does everything right in the sight of people. He even prays, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. The guy he was talking about was over here. He was a, he was a tax collector. And Jesus says in the story that he had gotten so far from God that he cannot even lift his eyes to heaven. So he's, he's, he's hunkered down like this, and Jesus describes him as physically beating his chest, saying, have mercy on me, O God. But shockingly in the story, Jesus says, this man goes home justified rather than this man. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells another story, and it's about a young man, and he's definitely over here. He, he asks his father for all of his inheritance, and he, glow, he goes out and he blows it, to put it in our day, on drugs and, and alcohol and women and everything that's bad. And he comes to the point where he's no longer feeding the hogs, but eating the food that he's pouring into the hog trough. And it comes to his mind, you know what? Being a slave at my father's house is better than what this is. I won't, I won't ask for sonship again, but I'm going to go back and see if my dad will let me be a slave in his house. And he, he runs back home. And shockingly, the father doesn't deny him sonship and make him a slave. The, shockingly, the father sprints to his son and welcomes him into his home. Then Jesus introduces us to a brother. That was brother with that guy over there. This brother is not so happy about his brother coming home. He doesn't join in welcoming the brother. Actually, he gets angry with the brother, with the father who welcomes the brother back. He says, God, or, or father, the father represents God in the story, you never threw a party for me. And my dear friends, if our righteousness is about getting God to do our thing instead of our righteousness, joining Him in His passions, it is disgusting to the heart of God. It's also in Jesus' day-to-day life. He runs into this man who's over here, a young man. He, he, he has plenty of money. And, and he says, uh, Jesus, tell me what I have to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus runs through a modified list of the Ten Commandments with him. And he says, I've done all of those. Righteous. Man, he's got it together. And then, shockingly, Jesus goes a different route with diagnosing his righteousness. He says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And that man walked away from the God of the universe very sad. And our, if our righteousness has, been, has become contented in our comfort, and we're no longer worried about the poor who are hurting, you can rest assured that our righteousness is disgusting in the sight of God. There's one more story. It's in John chapter 8. Jesus is teaching in the temple, 
And, and these righteous people over here bring a lady who's definitely over here caught in adultery. And they bring her to the middle of the temple. And they want to use the Bible to kill her. You ever seen anybody try to use the Bible to kill? But shockingly, Jesus doesn't do their thing. He becomes a shield for this lady who was definitely caught in her adultery. And my dear friends, if our righteousness feels like rocks instead of a shield for the broken, you can rest assured that Jesus is not impressed with our righteousness. I know it doesn't feel like that this morning, but if our social media feels like rocks to the broken instead of a shield for the broken, it is not the righteousness of Christ. In this very room, we have sung a song by Chris Tomlin that says, If our God is for us, who can be against us? But the very opposite is also true. If our God is disgusted by us, who cares who's impressed? Until we confess and repent of our broken sinfulness or our twisted righteousness... We can sing, we can raise our hands, we can dance, and we can pray in the very best ancient Hebrew. But we will not worship. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. I'm not going to spend much time explaining this. I don't really feel the need to, but I, I don't need to skip it. True worship always embraces forgiveness. I cannot help but believe there are some in this room who have totally and royally messed up. Maybe you're over here, and you have totally and royally messed up. And every time you try to realign your heart with the Father heart of God, with, with the broken, pursuing heart of God, you are adamantly attacked by the enemy. And he says, you can't do that. Because of something you did 15 years ago. You can't do that because of something you did yesterday. My dear friend, your true act of worship may be just to believe that Jesus has forgiven you. I can't, I can't tell you truthfully that everything will be made right with your situation. Um, but I am telling you that the forgiveness that is offered through the cross of Jesus is enough to realign your heart with His. And you can serve him today. Graduates, if you find yourself on the other end of some really bad decisions, I hope you're reminded of this. You repent of those decisions and you come back in here and you start following Jesus again. Verse 8. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. The wording of this verse is extremely important too. Did, did God call Isaiah specifically? No. He never said Isaiah's name. Did God tell Isaiah what he wanted Isaiah to do? No. Just like Isaiah saw in verse 1, he heard in verse 8. He did not know what God wanted him to do. He did not know that God was specifically talking to him to do it. He takes a risk here. But true worship always responds with risky obedience. There are many misconceptions out there about a call from God. I believe that God specifically calls people. I believe that God has specifically called me. But, there are things in, in His Word that He has called each of us to do. Each of us. And so many times we, we sit back and we wait on God to sit on our couch and call us to do specific things when there are needs. If somebody was just living the heart of Jesus in their daily world would be met. When we truly worship Jesus, when we truly see Him for who He is, He will have to pull back on our reins and, and tone us down before He has to beg us to do anything. When the Lord does call us to specific things, graduates, when the Lord calls you to be Sunday school teachers, when the Lord calls you to be deacons, and the Lord calls you to be pastors, it doesn't exempt you from the daily living out Christ in this world. I've been convicted about that in preparing this message. One thing I've said even lately is that I know God hasn't called me to children's ministry. Now, if you were at that Christmas candlelight service, I think we can all agree God hadn't called me to be a children's pastor. But Jesus calls me to children's ministry because he calls me to follow him and his heart passionately loves children. It's not because he sat on my couch and told me I ought to minister to children. It's because his word tells me that he loves children and he invites me to follow him into that. Friends, if you're a deacon... You're called into other things besides being a deacon. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you're called into other things besides being a Sunday school teacher. If you're a pastor, you're called into other things besides being a pastor. You're called into following Jesus fully, daily. As we obey the Bible, Jesus will begin to bring more specific things into our lives when we follow him simply.
Oh, Judd, lock me out of the house. When he did that, I, I did not think about the Bible first. <laughs> if I did, it would have been that I might have hit him with it. <laughs> but after he did that, I thought about a verse in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. It says, See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The picture there is Jesus standing outside of a house knocking on the door. You might have heard that verse used at a revival before. Where the evangelist is saying, if you, if, you will, if you hear the voice of God, open the door and he will let you in. And that's not a bad way to use it, but... The truth is, in that verse, the Lord Jesus was speaking to a church. He wasn't speaking to lost people. He was speaking to His people. Friends, we're prone to push Jesus away when it comes to our worship and make it all about us. But His Word has told us how He wants to be worshipped. And I want to urge you to do that this morning. Maybe you've become bored in your following of Jesus. I want to ask you to open your eyes and see Him for who He is. I'm sure not many preachers uh, preached to their people to repent of their righteousness this morning. But the truth is our twisted righteousness has become an epidemic. And we have become totally satisfied with a good old boy morality that has nothing to do with Jesus. And it's gross. And it's allowing people to spend eternity in hell. Maybe you have royally messed up and every time you try to come back in here you, you hear the enemy in your ear. Embrace forgiveness. Maybe you're scared. Maybe you're scared to, to follow Jesus with your whole life and, and, and follow Him with risk. Embrace risk. You know, fear has never stopped one death, but it has stopped a lot of lives. Embrace this calling, no matter what it is, to live for Jesus today. Maybe you're here and you have never for the first time surrendered your life to Christ. And just said, I want you to be my Lord. I want to ask you for the next few minutes to consider that to be your first act of worship. Repentance and embracing Jesus.